Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're here to talk about a topic which admittedly, when I hear about it, I start thinking about anything else and it's insurance and specifically why you should care about how insurance in this country has been changing. Click, 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 click. Those are all the people who are like, forget this. We're not listening to this episode. They're skipping this to go to the next episode. I get it because, you know, when I even when I'm talking right now, when I say the word insurance, I mean, Sarah, did your eyes just roll back in your head and you're thinking about like literally what you're going to have for lunch or, you know, whether the dog go out today or anything (laughs) along those lines. I mean, literally anything, right? (laughs) You're not alone. You're not alone. But it's important because this is a great bridge episode, folks. So Stick with us. Misasha, I have a question for you. Yeah. We're joking about insurance now, but when do you, in your growing up years, remember first really thinking about insurance? That's a good question. You know, insurance was something I didn't think about much until I had my first spinal surgery, and that was at 16. So I'd been on my parents' insurance at the time, and, you know, even with insurance, and we had great insurance, the out-of-pocket bill was outrageous. But we were in a really fortunate position. We could and did pay that. But I do remember from that point forward, realizing just how important insurance was to offset the cost of healthcare. So what about for you, Sarah? When did you first start thinking about insurance? I think it was when I was leaving my first major corporate job. I was in my 20s. I was dating the man who's now my husband. And as I was getting ready to basically leave the job, I had a moment where I was like, wait a second. How much actually is insurance going to be? Because I was able to buy out, they called it COBRA coverage. I don't know. I assume it still exists, but it's where you buy out your previous health insurer's policy so that you can still get the same level of care. And so as a 26-year-old in excellent health, it was over like 450 bucks a month just to have health insurance. And I'd still have to pay co-pays. I'd still have to meet the deductible, like all the things. And I'm like, who the hell can afford this? This is crazy. <laughs> and literally at that point, I remember having a conversation with my now husband. I'm like, should we get married on paper so I can switch to your insurance? But that was really like not a good enough reason, especially because I had purposely saved a lot of money at that point. So I could pay this stuff at that for like defined period of time. But yeah, it was a lot of money. And I guess that's the point. You and I have both been fortunate enough to have worked for employers with excellent coverage. I've been married to a man who, through his policy now, has excellent coverage. But that's not the reality for the vast majority of Americans. And whether it's you know coverage issue, whether it's because you're freelancers, you're starting your own business, whether it's because you're unemployed, you know it's a huge issue for us to consider in our election this year. And for those of you who have great cushy jobs with great insurance right now, what if they fire you? We have to pay attention to what the state of insurance is for everybody in this country. So that's why I was saying today's episode is kind of a transitional episode, because we have been talking about women's health and reproductive rights is one of our election arc issues. If you've missed it, please go back and listen, because we're bridging the gap with this episode between reproductive rights, health care, and into our next arc of income inequality. And really recently, the Trump administration just lashed out at California in a way that hits on all three of those points. So, Miss California, can you tell us a little bit about what happened to your state here? Yes. Well, and for those of you who listen to our episodes in order, our very last episode prior to this, we touch on this with Dr. Jen Conti, who is an abortion provider in the state of California. 
But very recently, according to the Wall Street Journal, the Trump administration told California it is violating federal law by requiring insurers, and that's private insurers, to cover abortion and threatened to withhold federal funding if the state doesn't end its mandate to for private insurers to cover abortion, which is the latest move in a broader White House effort to establish religion-based exemptions to reproductive rights statutes. So officials in the Republican administration signaled that they could also take aim at similar policies in other states, which potentially puts hundreds of billions of dollars in federal health funding at risk. And our California's Governor Newsom, who's a Democrat, pushed back in response to the administration's move against the nation's, you know, we are the most populous state in the nation, saying California will continue to protect a woman's right to choose and we won't back down from defending reproductive freedom for everybody. Full stop, he said in a statement on Friday. A broader legal battle between states and the White House is likely. So he said that statement on Friday. We're recording this basically the week after all of this came out. So this is all very current. It might have changed slightly since once this airs, but just so you have the timing and context. So what does this actually look like and why is there a dispute? Religious groups are say that the mandates force them to violate their beliefs by purchasing health insurance that covers abortions or by using their premiums to help pay for other consumers' abortions. But abortion rights groups say that states have the long-held right to regulate their own insurance markets through these things like mandates. We'll talk more about that in a second. They say that abortion, which has been legal nationally for decades, remember Roe v. Wade, is a medical procedure that should be covered just like prenatal and maternity care. So this is hundreds of billions of dollars here. California gets $51 billion from the Department of Health and Human Services, which is known as HHS, for its Medicaid program, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. The six states that mandate abortion coverage get more than $100 billion annually in federal Medicaid funds alone, according to Kaiser. So from the date of that notice, which was January 24th, California has 30 days to signal compliance and say that, okay, we won't mandate this before the agency takes action that could result in cutting this funding and how much we don't know yet. So help me understand here. What is this violation that they're saying California has made? Okay, great question. So HHS and specifically their Office for Civil Rights issued this notice of violation against the state, which, and in the notice, which I'll summarize because it's not exactly, you know. We're already talking about insurance. I mean, come on. (laughs) Exhilarating reading. You know, even the nerd in me is like, this is a little much. The agency said that the state's requirement violates federal law, which bans government entities that receive HHS funding from discriminating against healthcare organizations because they don't provide abortion or abortion coverage. In other words, if there are religious groups that are anti-choice or anti-abortion that provide health care, the fact that California requires that they provide abortion coverage as well, which also, by the way, is not just the procedures of abortion, but any discussion or abortion counseling. So if there are religious groups who provide health care or have even the option to discuss abortions, they're claiming that that's a violation of their religious rights because they should be able to practice their religious beliefs, which are anti-choice. Roger Severino, director of the HHS Office for Civil Rights, said that, quote, just as a government should not force a kosher deli to serve ham, you shouldn't require nuns to pay for abortion, and even more so because it involves the taking of a human life. And I think that if you have not heard the episode that came right before this, this is a really good time to go back and listen to that one because we unpack 
a lot of what he said there in that episode. But this is not a challenge that's happening just in California, but it's also happening in other places. And it's not just a challenge being brought by Catholic missions. And, you know, in a beautifully optical way, the Trump administration announced this plan on the day that thousands of anti-abortion activists gathered on the National Mall for the annual March for Life rally, which President Trump actually attended and addressed, which made him the first president to do so in person. Wow, that's interesting. Yep. But the Trump administration has pushed to include religious rights in healthcare policy. Last May, it issued a rule supporting health workers with moral or faith-based objections to certain medical procedures, which was this rule was later blocked in federal court. Administration officials and religious groups say laws that mandate contraception or abortion coverage shouldn't stand because they violate deeply held beliefs. Their position is part of a broader effort to harness federal civil rights laws to protect groups and individuals that oppose abortion. However, on the flip side, abortion rights groups say that the federal government is attacking access to reproductive rights that are protected under Roe v. Wade and other court rulings. They also say that letting insurers opt out of providing abortion coverage particularly harms lower income women who can't afford abortions otherwise. And we talked about that right at the tail end of the last episode, too, about how restricting this stuff. It's not about the health of women. It's really about not giving women choice, and it does harm lower-income women and people of color in particular. Yeah, exactly. So some legal experts say that the Trump administration, this threat of withholding funds, just sort of tramples all over states' rights to regulate their own insurance markets. And so let's just pause here for a second, because Sarah, when we were talking about this episode... Because <laughs> my face was like, what the heck are you talking about right now? You raised a great question, you know, because... Insurance is very confusing, and part of it is federally regulated, like the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, for example. And then there are things that are called mandated benefits, which are also known as mandated health insurance benefits or mandates that can be issued at a federal level or at a state level. And these mandates are basically requirements that states, for example, cover the treatment of specific health conditions, certain types of healthcare providers, and some categories of dependents, like children placed for adoption, for example. So prior to the passage of the Affordable Care Act between the states and the federal government, there are upwards of 2,000 health insurance mandates. So that's a lot of mandates. Why isn't it just like one law? or something. It's like amendment after amendment after amendment is kind of how I feel like it is. There's so many different things in this country in such disparity, because if they're not all federal, that means that states have different rules about what coverage you can get. Yeah, no. And well, and that's part of, you know, what was granted the split between federal and states rights under the Constitution. So we have a really difficult time because what is regulated by the government, what is regulated by the state. And that's why we have so many because we don't align a lot of times, even state to state, right? So these mandates, although they continue to be added, and clearly we have a lot of them, they're also controversial because there's sort of two different groups or two sides to mandates or two groups that view mandates differently. Patient advocates claim that mandates help to ensure adequate health insurance protection, while others, and in particular the health insurance companies, complain that mandates increase the cost of health care and health insurance. I mean, duh, of course it does, because they're basically telling you you have to cover more people effectively is what the mandate should be saying, right? Or more, you know, you should cover this new procedure that is proven to save a life, whatever. Right. And as a private insurance company, you don't have control to say, yes, we're going to cover it. No, we're not going to cover it. You, The state is telling you that you have to cover it. So 
Clearly, the mandated benefit laws most often apply to health insurance coverage offered by employers and private health insurance purchased directly by an individual. So both of those are often at a state level. So that's why we often see state mandates as opposed to federal mandates, let's say. Got it. Okay, so back to California for a second. President Trump and his campaign have been really eager, especially looking towards 2020, to expand support from anti-abortion voters. So in conjunction with his challenge to California, his campaign released a video announcing the launch of pro-life voices for Trump. And as we discussed, is it really pro-life or anti-choice? And so he specifically is picking the term pro-life there or his marketing campaign team is. The president has made a series of other moves aimed at conservative Christian voters, including a pledge to renew guidance on prayer in schools and the launch of the Evangelicals for Trump coalition. Can you remind me about that whole separation of church and state? Wasn't that a thing? Isn't that written somewhere in our governmental documents? Yes, apparently we have a very loose interpretation of how or what sections we're going to apply. It's in the Constitution, right? Right. But clearly we can, you know, people like certain amendments more than they like other amendments, let's say. So or they've chosen along the way. But what that article hints at is a much bigger issue. So the question of how insurance comes about in this country and the state control versus federal control, all of that, those are big questions. But an even bigger question is who controls who gets insurance and who is eligible for insurance and for what? That is a really key question that we need to look at. So let's unpack that a little. First of all, as a basic premise, the president has a lot of power in this arena. Unlike big asterisk here. Note, everybody, November, okay? The president has a lot of power. So think about this and the future health of yourself, your partners, your children, your parents. Just think for a minute here. Okay, sorry, I had to interject. No, please, of course. So unlike some areas of criminal justice, where, as we've discussed, the president needs Congress or reproductive justice, where the president needs the Supreme Court, if you're president, you can act in the healthcare realm almost immediately. So as an example, January 20th, 2017, which was the very day that President Trump was sworn in, he also signed an executive order instructing administration officials to, quote, waive, defer, grant exemptions from or delay implementing parts of the Affordable Care Act while Congress got ready to repeal and replace President Obama's signature health care law. Remember this, the whole concept of Obamacare is done. We're in a new era now. But that was literally the day he was inaugurated. Wow. So we were in a new era, except we weren't, because months later, repeal and replace didn't work, if you remember, after the late Senator John McCain's dramatic thumbs down on that crucial vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, which President Trump has not forgotten. He still frequently mentions this moment in his speeches and rallies, including in a recent speech on Medicare. So after that, and after Trump realized that the repealing and replacing wasn't going to happen just all at once, his administration has been focused more on a piecemeal approach to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. In the fall of 2017, the president tweeted, Obamacare is a broken mess after the repeal in Congress had failed. Piece by piece, we will now begin the process of giving America the great health care it deserves. So what do you think? Does America have the great health care that it deserves? What is the state of health care today? In 2018, which is the latest data that we were able to find, private health insurance coverage continued to be more prevalent than public coverage. So about 67% of our population has private health insurance, and about 34% of the population has 
public coverage, like the Affordable Care Act. Of the subtypes of the health insurance coverage situation, employer-based insurance the one we talked about where we have a job and they give you subsidies and they pay for your coverage is most common. So about 55% of the population has employer-based insurance for all or part of the calendar year. If you're like me and have largely had private health care or like you, I think you have it too. You, I really didn't know what the state of the Affordable Care Act is or what people who don't have private insurance or employer-covered insurance is, but it's really important to know how things have changed, even since Obama, because this gives you an idea of how fast things can change. Because like I mentioned before, we have to vote about this. The president has a lot of power here, and you just have to think about it and think, consider whether it's moving in the direction you want it to. According to NPR, we'll give you right now five of the biggest changes to the federal health law under President Trump, which can give you an idea of the power of the president with regard to health care. So number one is that the individual mandate was eliminated. What's the individual mandate? It's the requirement that all U.S. residents either have health insurance or you pay a penalty. Do you remember this, right? Like on your taxes, you have to check off that form. I have health insurance or whatever. The mandate was intended to help keep the premiums for the Affordable Care Act policies low by making sure that more healthy people entered the health insurance market. But what changed? Well, in 2017, the Republican-backed tax overhaul legislation reduced the penalty for not having insurance to zero. There is no penalty. And so the administration now says we eliminated Obamacare's horrible, horrible, very expensive and very unfair, unpopular individual mandate, a total disaster. That was a big penalty. That was a big thing where you paid a lot of money for the privilege of having no health care. That was a direct quote from of President Trump back in 2019. So the administration is saying this. You know, I was just going to talk about what the impact is of that, because this is the position of the administration. But... Let's unpack that, because first of all, getting rid of the penalty for skipping insurance opened a new avenue of attack against the entire Affordable Care Act in the courts via the Texas versus Azar lawsuit. So back in 2012, the Affordable Care Act had been upheld as constitutional by the Supreme Court because the penalty, that individual mandate, you know, pay a penalty if you're not insured, was essentially a tax and Congress is allowed to create a new tax. Last December, though, a federal judge in Texas ruled that now the penalty is zero it's a command, so it's not a tax and so is therefore unconstitutional. He also reasoned that it cannot be cut off from the rest of the law, just that penalty section as opposed to the entire Affordable Care Act. So he judged the whole law to be unconstitutional. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals punted it back, which basically means they said they weren't going to decide whether it was constitutional or not. They were going to let someone else decide. So it went up to the Supreme Court meaning that the Supreme Court could have heard it this year. They declined to hear it this case this year, though, which means they're not going to rule on whether the Affordable Care Act is constitutional or not, which leaves the entire Affordable Care Act in limbo until after our presidential elections in November. So that's big. Eliminating the penalty or taking that down to zero also caused insurance premiums to rise. So even though Trump had said, you know, this is we're getting rid of this horrible, costly penalty, we are paying a different penalty because premiums are going up, says Sabrina Corlett, director of this Center on Health Insurance Reforms at Georgetown University. Insurance companies were getting very strong signals from the Trump administration that even if the Affordable Care Act wasn't repealed, the Trump administration probably was not going to enforce the individual mandate, she says. Insurance companies figured that without a financial penalty, healthy people would opt not to buy insurance and that the pool of those that remained would be smaller and sicker. So even though the $0 penalty didn't actually go into effect 
until 2019, Corlett says, insurance companies, in anticipation of this mandate going away and in anticipation that consumers would believe that this mandate was no longer going to be enforced, they already priced for that as early as 2018. So according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, premiums went up about 32% on average for Affordable Care Act silver plans that went into effect in early 2018, although most people received subsidies to offset those premium hikes. Wow, that's pretty fast that things can change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the second thing that the NPR says the effect since the Trump administration has happened is that states are allowed to add work requirements to Medicaid. So what does that mean? Medicaid expansion was a key part of the Affordable Care Act. The federal government helped pay for states that chose to participate in it to expand Medicaid eligibility beyond families to include all low-income adults and to raise the income threshold so that more people would be eligible for Medicaid. So far, 37 states and Washington, D.C., have opted to expand Medicaid. But what has changed? Under Trump, if they get approval from the federal government, states can now require Medicaid beneficiaries to prove with documentation that they either work or go to school. The administration says about this, and this is a quote from Seema Varma, administration of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. When you consider that less than five years ago, Medicaid was expanded to nearly 15 million new working age adults, it's fair that states want to add community engagement requirements for those with the ability to meet them. It's easier to give someone a card. It's much harder to build a ladder to help people climb their way out of poverty. But even though it's harder, it's the right thing to do. So what's the impact of this? Even though healthcare.gov and the state insurance exchanges get a lot of attention, the majority of people who gained healthcare coverage after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which was 12.7 million people, actually got their coverage by being newly able to enroll in Medicaid. Medicaid expansion has proven to be quite popular, and in the 2018 election, three more red states, namely Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah, voted to join in. Right now, 18 states have applied to the federal government to implement work requirements, but most such programs haven't yet gone into effect. The one work requirement program that's actually gone into effect is in Arkansas, says Nicholas Bagley, a professor of law at the University of Michigan and a close follower of the Affordable Care Act. We now have good data indicating that tens of thousands of people were kicked off of Medicaid, not because they were ineligible under the work requirement program, but because they had trouble actually following through on the reporting requirements, dealing with websites, trying to figure out how to report hours effectively, and all the rest. So it's not even that they weren't working or were actually ineligible under this new work requirement standard. It's that there is so much administrative red tape and policies around reporting those hours or how do you do that, that they were ineligible. If most states not are able to implement work requirements, Bagley says, that could lead to the loss of coverage for tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people. CMS Administrator Verma, the one who had talked about, you know, how it's the right thing to do, has pushed back on the idea that these requirements are, quote, some subversive attempt to just kick people off of Medicaid, unquote. Instead, she says, their aim is to put beneficiaries in control with the right incentives to lead healthier, independent lives. Work requirements in Arkansas and Kentucky were put on hold by a federal judge in March, and those cases are on appeal. This issue is likely headed also to the Supreme Court. And that'll tie in, I think, in my opinion, with the number five issue coming up later on. But we're still on number three. The cost sharing reduction subsidies to insurers have ended. Even as I said that statement, I was like, what the heck is that? <laughs> what it is, is that payments from the federal government to insurers to motivate them to stay in these insurance exchanges for the Affordable Care Act 
and to help keep premiums down. So these are payments that the government's making to keep insurance in here. What happened is that the Trump administration suddenly stopped paying these subsidies in 2017. So President Trump said, I knocked out the hundreds of millions of dollars a month being paid back to the insurance companies by politicians. This is money that goes to the insurance companies to line their pockets to raise up their stock prices. And they've had a record run. They've had an incredible run and it's not appropriate. So what's the impact? This change has had a strange and unexpected impact on the new insurance market set up by the Affordable Care Act. Insurers were in a bind. They had to offer subsidies to low-income people applying for insurance, but the federal government was no longer reimbursing them. The first thinking was, oh gosh, that's going to cause premiums to go up and it's going to hurt the marketplace said Christine Eibner, who tracks the Affordable Care Act at the nonpartisan RAND Corporation. What ended up happening is insurers, by and large, addressed this by increasing the price of the silver plan on the health insurance exchanges. So this pricing strategy was nicknamed silver loading because the silver plan is the one used to calculate tax credits. The Trump administration still ended up paying to subsidize people's premiums, but in a different way. In fact, it has probably led to an increase in federal spending to help people afford marketplace premiums, Eibner says. Where the real damage has been done is for folks who aren't eligible for subsidies, who are making just a little bit too much for those subsidies, Corlett adds. They really are priced out of comprehensive Affordable Care Act compliant insurance. So there is not actually a decrease in federal spending. There might actually be an increase in federal spending. And you're hurting the people who are right at the cusp was my takeaway from that. The people who were so close to being able to get the Affordable Care Act insurance, but just can't really get the benefit of the subsidies. So they're now in this limbo area. Fourth impact, access to short-term skinny plans has been expanded. And I didn't even know that this kind of plan existed, but it's a plan. So the Affordable Care Act initially established rules that health plans sold on healthcare.gov and the state exchanges had to cover people with pre-existing conditions and had to provide certain essential benefits. President Obama limited any short-term insurance policies that did not provide those benefits to a maximum duration of three months. And the idea behind them is that they can serve as like this helpful bridge if you're going between school and a job, for example. What changed is that the Trump administration issued a rule last year that allowed these short-term plans to last 364 days and to be renewable for three years. What President Trump said was, we took swift action to open short-term health plans and association health plans to millions and millions of Americans. Many of these options are already reducing the cost of health insurance premiums by up to 60% and really more than that. So what's the impact? The new rule went into effect last October, though availability of these short-term or skinny plans varies depending on where you live. Some states have passed their own laws that either limit or expand access to them. Some federal actuaries projected lots of people would leave the affordable care marketplaces to get these cheaper plans. They said that would likely increase the size of premiums paid by people who buy more comprehensive coverage on the Affordable Care Act exchanges. But a recent analysis from the Kaiser Family Foundation found that the Affordable Care Act marketplaces have actually stayed pretty stable. Still, there's another consequence of expanding access to these less comprehensive plans. People who get these, quote, skinny plans aren't really fully protected in the event that they have a serious health condition and need to use their insurance, Eibner said. They may find that it doesn't cover everything that they would have been covered for under an Affordable Care Act compliant plan. 
For instance, you may pay only $70 a month in premiums, but have a deductible that's $12,500. So remember, that's the amount that you need to basically meet out of pocket in order to have insurance kick in. So if you get really sick or get into an accident, you could be in serious financial straits because think of that out of pocket payment then, like going back to the spinal surgery example, that can be exponentially more than you're prepared to pay in any short or even longer amount of time. The fifth impact is that the funds to facilitate healthcare.gov signups were slashed. And this is the one that I talked about before when we're talking about how people not understanding how to get through the red tape. The Affordable Care Act created this program called the Navigator Program, and it had an advertising budget to help people figure out specifics of the new federally run insurance exchanges, and it helped them sign up for coverage. And in unfortunately, in August 2017, the administration significantly cut federal funding for these programs. The administration said that it's time for the Navigator program to evolve. This decision reflects CMS's commitment to put federal dollars for the federally facilitated exchanges to their most cost-effective use in order to better support consumers through the enrollment process. So one of the things that I did as a litigator was working on some of these healthcare exchanges on the technical side or dealing with that. And with even with max information, it is still so difficult to figure out, especially when this was first being rolled out. So what is the impact of those cuts? It's hard to document what the impact of this particular cut was on enrollment. The cuts were uneven and some states and cities got creative to keep providing services. We have seen erosion in overall health insurance coverage, Corlett says, but it's hard to know whether that's the effect of the individual mandate going away, the short-term plans, or the reductions in marketing and outreach. It's really hard to tease out the impact of those three changes. And we, those are you know, two of the other changes plus the one that we're discussing right now. Overall, Nicholas Bagley says the Affordable Care Act has been pretty resilient to everything so far that the Trump administration has thrown at it. Some of Trump's efforts to hobble the law have been caught up in the courts. Others have not gone into effect. And despite efforts to lure people away from the individual insurance marketplaces or to make Affordable Care Act policies unaffordable, the marketplaces have proved themselves to be remarkably resilient, Corlett says. Abby Gluck, who's the director of the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy at Yale, cautions that though the law has proven to be stronger than expected, all these actions by the Trump administration have indeed had an effect. These actions have been designed to depress enrollment. They have depressed enrollment, she said. They have increased insurance prices. Also, the uninsured rate for U.S. residents also went up in 2018 for the first time since before the Affordable Care Act was passed. Despite that, one of the things that has kept the marketplaces as strong as they are, Gluck notes, is that they're not all run by the federal government. Since the Affordable Care Act is implemented half by state governments, mostly blue states, those state governments have been able to resist these sabotaging efforts, Gluck says. They have been able to extend enrollment and they've been able to do outreach because they run their own insurance markets. And in those states, there's already evidence that the sabotage attacks have not been felt as strongly. The piecemeal attacks on the Affordable Care Act have made many people nervous about the future of their health care coverage, Gluck says. I mean, no surprise there. The most important theme in the Trump administration of the Affordable Care Act has been to sow uncertainty into the market and destabilize the insurance pool, she says. Okay, so all of this goes to say that we still have the Affordable Care Act and it's still working in some form, basically, for now. But let's address one of the key barriers to insurance that has been, shall we say, creatively discussed by the Trump administration and something that we talked about earlier in one of those five key changes, pre-existing conditions. 
So there's a great piece in the Washington Post about the history of pre-existing condition protections in the U.S., but let's talk about what it means for real. And if you're really interested in the history of it, let us know. We'll send you the link. But pre-existing conditions are tricky. And I just want to share a personal story here. My younger brother, true story, out of college, was working two part-time jobs. And he's a hard worker, a smart guy, was busting his chops to make sure he worked enough to pay his bills and have a life. There's no insurance at part-time jobs. Right. Think about the musicians, you know, think about the part time employees, you know, think about the stay at home moms, you know, the people who are starting their own companies, people who are single doing all of this and don't have some partner whose insurance they can latch into all of the people who are basically unaffiliated with a major company that provides insurance coverage, because that's how it was here in this country. Right. The majority of people only got insurance coverage if they had a job at a major company, not just because they're citizens of a country who looks out for them. So fast forward, my brother was recognized. One of his part time jobs was like selling stuff and he was recognized by the corporation behind one of them. So he got hired and got to move into corporate and he got like a we were like, yeah, you got a real job. That's great. And along with it came insurance. And thank goodness he did, because within a year, I'm fuzzy on the timeline, maybe it was two but my 20 something year old brother was diagnosed with cancer. So even with insurance and without having to go through chemotherapy, just one surgery, he still had to pay multiple thousands of dollars out of pocket for the privilege of getting hit, like this potentially deadly illness out of his body. And so I think about my brother now, and if he ever moves jobs, if he ever starts his own business, if he ever wants to just do drumming on his own, he's now got a pre-existing condition. He has had cancer. In terms of the history of this really quickly, though, it was only in 1991, which for me feels like yesterday, maybe to some listeners is like, wow, that was forever ago. But it became one of the first states to prohibit health plans and insurance companies from using health status to exclude patients and set prices. Since that time, like for the next 15 years or so, the momentum was overall to continue to expand coverage and allow people to get medical treatment and coverage regardless of a pre-existing condition. And then finally, we talked about it, like in March 2010, the Affordable Care Act was passed without a single Republican vote. President Obama signed the law, which created a nationwide ban on discriminating against or charging more to patients based on their health status in the individual and small group markets. And I mean, we've said it a ton here. The Affordable Care Act is the ACA, which is Obamacare. Like they're all the same thing. But fast forward to 2017. And President Trump is supporting bills from House and Senate Republicans that would weaken pre-existing condition protections by allowing states to seek waivers from the law and to consider a person's health status when they're writing policies in the individual market. I mean, there's been talk about continuing to take down the ACA and only cheap words about protecting those with pre-existing conditions. I mean, could you imagine once you have a pre-existing conditions? I mean, we're talking like my brother with cancer, sure, or if you've ever been diagnosed with depression, which is already seen in this country as shameful to admit that you have. And now if you're ever diagnosed with it, you get a financial penalty. It could jack up your ability to ever get insurance or, you know, it would increase your price. What if you had a heart issue? I mean, you could possibly never get insurance or be held on the financial hook for something that's out of your control. And on one hand, I get it. Insurance companies are companies. They need to function financially and they need to limit unhealthy people in their programs and jack up payments from people who are more risky. Like they've got to make the numbers work. And I get it for things that maybe might be under some people's control, right? In certain cases, maybe obesity, if all things being equal, you have access to healthy foods, you have time for exercise, you have time to cook, you're not predisposed to genetic conditions, maybe obesity could be on the risky scale or smoking, right? That's a choice people make and it could bring on an addiction that'll raise your, probably raise your risk of health problems later on. But 
So many things about your health are out of your control. And what frustrates me is that say I work at a big company and I get cancer and say you work a few part-time jobs and you get cancer. Am I a better person than you? Am I more worthwhile of a human being than you are? Should I get better treatment than you because I happen to work for a big company and you don't and so you can't afford it? In this country, I can't imagine how fearful it must be for so many people. I mean, in 2018, 8.5% of people or 27.5 million people, they did not have health insurance at any point during the year. What if you cross the street and get hit by a bus and you can't afford the hospital stay? Wouldn't you feel so much stress if you're working so hard to put food on the table and your heart goes out or you get cancer and you have to choose between putting food on your table or getting treatment? You could go bankrupt because you can't afford basic health insurance. I just feel like I'm really going on a rant. I acknowledge this, but wouldn't we as a country be a better society if everyone felt safer, that they just had some basic coverage and people looking out for them, that they'll be taken care of if something happens to their bodies that's out of their control? Right. Amen to all of that. So what we have here is not a great solution yet. And the role that the president has in shaping who gets access to what healthcare options, as we've just been discussing, is clearly that's a big one. When you think about the end of that pre-existing conditions timeline, all of the changes that the Trump presidency has implemented in three short years, this is something that we need to be very aware of. Yeah. I mean, if you're like us and want to see what the candidates think about healthcare's big issues, we've got you covered, much like our other issue arcs. And we'll post a link to a really informative and interactive political analysis of each candidate's position on a few key issues. Thanks for listening to my rant. You obviously know what I think. I agree. We don't have a perfect solution yet. I don't think that we're going to come to it quickly because it's a big, big problem. But we do have to be thinking about it and grappling with all of the different things that are involved with making this stuff happen. So hopefully you'll take some of this with you into the primaries, which are coming up and also the November 3rd election. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 